Today's episode is brought to you by Maria Jose Ferrada's How to Turn into a Bird, a novel that beautifully details the life and lessons of an unconventional man and the boy who loves him. Set in Santiago, Chile, the novel follows 12-year-old Miguel, who's enchanted by his uncle Ramon's unusual job to take care of a Coca-Cola billboard by the highway and his even more peculiar decision to make the billboard his new home. As he visits his uncle in his perch above it all, Miguel wonders if his uncle has lost his mind, as everyone in the neighborhood says. Or is Ramon the only one who can see things as they really are? Says Megan McDowell. With all the brutal simplicity of a fairy tale, Maria Jose Ferrada lays bare the blind and violent intolerance that reigns on the precarious outskirts of an unequal society a deceptively simple tale in a sensitive translation by Elizabeth Breyer. This book is a gift. How to Turn into a Bird is out now from Tin House. Several episodes back, I mentioned that it is usually only in retrospect that I feel like I notice trends between episodes, discovering after the fact that I've invited many different writers to speak to the same question whether that be storytelling in climate apocalypse or more broadly what art making does and doesn't do in the world or questions around empathy or questions around presuming the position of another within one's work. But that recently I felt like I was recognizing a trend that I was in the middle of for once, a trend around questions of narrative and storytelling and the powers and dangers, limitations and possibilities of it the way it can erase, as well as reproduce harm, and the ways it can enact imaginatively a deeper sense of time, a simultaneous connection to ancestral knowledge and to futures that arise from a care we express towards beings that don't yet exist. And lately on the show, this seems to have gravitated around the novel form. I think of the conversations with Sheila Hetty and Billy Ray Belcourt about their books, that gesture toward a new form for the novel. Hernan Diaz, whose books within books, frames within frames, look at the ways stories build empires through the erasure of other voices. I think of the conversation with Hélène Sixou, where her novel memoirs are less in the tradition of autofiction than a way in language to capture the way consciousness actually happens, its interplay with the unconscious, the interplay between memory and the imagination, history and present-day perception, and more. Daniel Mendelssohn contrasting the Greek and Hebrew modes of storytelling to look at the strengths and limits of language. And even the conversation with poet Dion Brand about her wariness around narrative, even as she engages with it, both within and outside her poetry. And then, of course, the Crafting with Ursula series, where... Le Guin herself is grappling with the inherited forms within narrative and aiming for an as-of-yet-realized future for the novel itself, especially in the carrier bag theory of fiction, which I discussed with Lydia Yuknovich, and also the final episode with Neil Gaiman about the power of stories and telling stories and how we seem hardwired from a very young age to be able to extract the truth from tales that have been made up. 
I bring this all up because today's conversation with Lucy Ives, the final one of the year, I think it's a culmination of this trend. Her work across time itself grapples deeply with narrative and the novel form, even in her nonfiction and poetry, and itself has culminated in her latest novel or anti-novel, Life is Everywhere. And having just finished the Crafting with Ursula series, it is fitting that this last episode of the year is also a very Le Guin-inspired episode as well, as Lucy's latest book is not only formally influenced by Le Guin's carrier bag theory of fiction, but the story literally contains a carrier bag within its plot, a bag we spend a great deal of time within during our reading of the book, ourselves reading what is inside the bag of the protagonist as we go. Because of all these episodes before this one, because they've been part of this growing swell of questions concerning narrative, we start today's conversation in a rather abstract and heady space about the novel form. But before long, we are parsing all the innumerable ways Lucy Ives, in her new novel, is mirroring back to us our own expectations of what a novel or story should be and enacting new and different ways of how it could be as she does. It's a perfect way to end my favorite year yet for the show. Before we start, I should mention Lucy's contribution to the bonus audio archive. Lucy reads to us and for us a five-part writing exercise, an exercise involving five prompts called Exercise for Writing from Memory. This joins tons of other bonus material from a craft talk by Marlon James called The Nine and a Half Rules of Seduction about the common mistakes writers do at the sentence level and the level of story that can ruin the seduction and the best ways to remedy them, to readings from everyone from Ted Chang to Daniel Jose Older, from Nikki Finney to Dion Brand. This is only one potential benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. And you can find out about all of them, all the potential rewards and benefits at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Lucy Ives. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. 
Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the novelist, poet, and critic Lucy Ives, a graduate of Harvard and then an MFA in poetry from the Iowa Writers' Workshop, followed by a PhD in comparative literature from NYU. Ives has since taught in the Image Text Interdisciplinary MFA program at Ithaca College, as well as in NYU's Experimental Humanities and Social Engagement Master's program. Her critical writing has appeared in Art Forum, Freeze, Granta, Lapham's Quarterly, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Art in America, Aperture, and Vogue, among many other places. She's been an editor at Triple Canopy, a magazine of art and literature. And in 2020, she edited the first definitive collection of poet-architect Madeline Ginn's Poetry and Prose, The Saddest Thing is That I Have Had to Use Words, a Madeline Ginn's reader out with Siglio Press. Prior to her last four books, much of Lucy Ives' own writing early on was poetry or cross-genre, including her long poem, Anamnesis, which won the Slope Editions Book Prize and was also recorded and released on 12-inch vinyl, and her hard-to-categorize 2016 book from Song Cave called The Hermit, of which Ann Boyer said, Lucy Ives is smart in that heartbreaking way that can make a spare, suspicious, elegant work of anti-poetry out of the silent treatment between ideas and those who have them. In 2017, Ives published her debut novel, a New York Times book review editor's choice, Impossible Views of the World, of which Wayne Kostenbaum said, Lucy Ives, a deeply smart and painstakingly elegant writer, wins the prize with this intricate, droll, stylish book, at once a mystery novel, a romantic comedy, a tricky essay on aesthetics, an expose of art world foibles, and a diary of emotional distress. With sharp phrases, uncanny plot turns, and mise on a beam galore, this mesmerizing tale radiates the hot irreality of last year at Marienbad and the dreamy claustrophobia of the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, this time for adults only. She followed this with a second novel, a second New York Times book review editor's choice, called Louder Milk, or The Real Poet, or The Origin of the World, described by Kirkus as half-gonzo grad school satire, half-theoretical inquiry into the nature of writing and reality, Wonder Boys meets Cyrano de Bergerac meets Jacques Lacan meets Animal House, something for everyone. Her first story collection, Cosmogony, came out last year with Soft Skull. Booklist in its reviews said, Ives has the rare ability to boomerang reality totally out of whack before calling it home in an even purer form. And Lily Meyer for NPR said, I'd move to her weird cosmos any day. And lucky for us, we get to now explore Lucy Ives' latest weird cosmos her latest book to boomerang reality, her new novel, if we can call it that, Life is Everywhere from Grey Wolf. Jamie Hood for Book Forum says, The novel we thought we'd been reading, Me Too Scandal, Rocks University, disassembles itself 
becomes something else and something else again. When we return at the novel's close to the incident, it is complicated further, left insistently, uncannily unknowable. Life is everywhere, reminds us that institutions have the advantages of accumulated power and the time to wait us out. But the rupture has happened. The cracks in the system are exposed. Opening opportunities. We just have to take them. For Nina Renata Aaron at the Los Angeles Times, Life is Everywhere recalls in its story-within-story form, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, Nabokov's Pale Fire, and Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy. Jesse Ball thinks of another book when he says the superb Lucy Ives slays enemy and friend alike in this multivalent successor to Jarrell's Pictures from an Institution. Alejandra Zambra adds, writing novels is the way Lucy Ives discovers her thoughts about the at once disheartening and marvelous fact of being alive right here, right now. This brilliant and playful novel brims with wisdom. Finally, Percival Everett says, If Lucy Ives is as smart as her novel, Life is Everywhere, then I am in complete awe. The novel is challenging in all the best ways and an absolute joy to read. How many books in one and yet one book? This is great writing. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lucy Ives. Thank you so much, David, and, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. So there are many ways we could begin this conversation about your latest book, but I want to begin it with a question that immediately leaps to the foreground when I step back and look at your life as a writer more generally. Stepping back, you seem to have an enduring preoccupation, dare I say obsession, with the novel as a form, regardless of the genre you're writing in. Your poetry chapbook from 2009 is titled My Thousand Novel. Your 2012 poetry chapbook is titled simply Novel. Your 2015 book, World Killers, perhaps provocatively places a novel within the same covers as poetry and essay, sitting it between them. In your 2016 book of aphoristic prose poems, The Hermit, you return over and over again to the novel as form. Just to pick a few examples, when I was 13, I swore to myself that I would become a novelist, or... I want to write an essay about the novel as a site of novelty where the proposition anything can happen is somehow tested. Your first novel that was put out into the world as a novel is a mashup of genres, mystery and romance and others, but also of reproduced real texts as well as fake novels and fake artworks dropped among real artists and real art. In your introduction to the Madeline Ginz reader, you say this about Ginz, quote, with her group novel, which she also terms an historical novel, an exploration of the nature of consciousness, Ginz inhabits the so-called author function without attempting to act as the sole originator of the novel's meaning. This is profoundly synthetic and polyvocal literary production presaging and perhaps even predicting contemporary platform-enabled 
collaborative writing online. And then in your limited edition pamphlet from earlier this year, Exercises for Writing from Memory and Other Exercises, you yourself have an exercise for composing a collective or group novel. So before we talk about your latest novel and what it is itself doing to the novel, tell us what's going on between you and the novel, Lucy Ives. That's a great question. And I'm, it's, it is one I'm excited to answer in part because the way that you pose it uh, allows me to approach the novel in several different ways. And the first way that I want to approach the novel and my relationship to it is to tell you a story about myself. So I have memories, as I think many people do, of childhood and seeing bookshelves, you know, in, in the home, but in other places too. And seeing books on bookshelves that were novels and feeling that they had a special kind of valence about them and a special kind of information about the world in them. And uh, I was a <laughs> I was a late reader. I don't I don't think I really learned to read until I was maybe eight or nine years old, which is an embarrassing thing to share. But um, I've I've since overcompensated. So uh, <laughs> I think it's 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 OK. Um, Maybe there's a way in which that gave me some time to think about novels as objects, as objects that had received a particular kind of investment from adults, possibly from society, that were associated with images and um, particular kinds of arrangement of text, but were also treated in a certain way by, by people. And when I was finally able to read novels, and one of the first novels that I read very imperfectly, but because it happened to be on a certain bookshelf and I would pick it up and look at it all the time. And when I got good enough at reading, I read um, the beginning of it was Middlemarch, actually. Mm. And it was, an, it was a, a version of an edition of Middlemarch that had um, illustrations in it, not many illustrations, but some illustrations. And, I remember looking at these figures, these female characters uh, who are sitting in, in different places indoors and just thinking, you know, why is this here and why is there this incredibly detailed writing about what's taking place in these rooms and why do we need to know all of this about these people? And so for me, that's probably where my curiosity about novels and both love of them and and a feeling of a certain kind of alienation from from them came about so that's the story about me and then there's a story about the novel itself in which as you as you mentioned i see as um at once a site of novelty or a place where we can find new things and we can find new ways of bringing the world into text. And it's also a site of genre and of conventions. And some of these conventions, which we're very familiar with, include um, the arc of plot and um, the story of the hero and the, the story of a kind of development, which is of importance to society as a whole. So that German word Bildung can can come in 
as well. And there's also something to do with how we know how to read. So how we recognize something as being readable or legible and how that's attached to everyday life that's very significantly at play in the novel. So those are all the things that that make me interested in novels and make me want to do, both participate in the tradition and, and conventions of novels and also resist them and also do things like what Madeline Ginz did where she tried to go out on the street in New York City and ask strangers to help her write a novel. Well, as you said at the beginning of your answer, there might be innumerable ways you could have answered and you liked the freedom of how you could have possibly answered in, in multiple ways. So I want to ask the question again in a different way to see if it provokes another true answer from you also. Um, you moderated a panel called This Is Not a Novel, named after the David Markson book of the same name. In that panel discussion, there was a really interesting exchange between David Shields and Shelley Jackson. You prefaced the whole discussion that's about to happen in the panel with a question that you said was a question also for yourself, that given that the novel historically is a very genre agnostic form, that it has a history of including disparate things within it, you wondered if in today's environment, if it were enough to simply include other genres within it, or whether it was vital to say, this is not a novel as part of writing a novel. And then David Shields talks about David Markson's book, Wittgenstein's Mistress, how for him, it is too wedded to conventional forms, and that it's really Markson's last four books, including This Is Not a Novel, not Wittgenstein's Mistress, that succeed in the deconstruction or interrogation of the novel for him. And Shelley Jackson then mounts what I found to be a really interesting defense of Wittgenstein's mistress. She says that what makes it powerful is that it slips out of your grasp in terms of genre because it presents itself as a novel, engaging with you in a novelistic way with narrative and something at stake in a conventional sense, but that it ultimately frays into something that feels like pure meditation, philosophy, and nonfiction. She continues to say that the ambiguity puts us into exactly the sort of space Shields was arguing for himself, the space of not knowing where you are. And then speaking about her own work, she says that even though her work often verges on art or performance or something other than conventional fiction, it has always been important for her to put it in relation to conventional fiction. On the one hand, she's interested in breaking genre constraints and redefining fiction. But on the other hand, she wants to exploit the expectations that the form creates in the reader, the expectations of a familiar experience, that people go in with certain expectations, reading a novel, of getting a certain satisfaction and gratification, and that being proximate to the convention sets the reader up nicely for disappointment. And that disappointment can be revelatory. Um, that she's interested in giving readers experiences that they don't know what to do with and don't understand. And perhaps most notably, she says, 
in, in regards to where to place the reader that starting from thinking that you know where you are is a particularly good place to get the rug pulled out from under you. In other words, Wittgenstein's mistress's conventional elements make it more effective at doing this, not less. And perhaps she's saying if you go too far away from the novel form, you risk not being engaged with it at all. She doesn't say this explicitly. Um, but this is my very long way of asking again why you want to be proximate to the novel form, what the pull and allure of it is. In The Hermit, you say, I can't describe myself as a poet. I'm the author of some kind of thinking about writing. Why does the novel seem to be a sort of black hole that organizes a lot of this thinking about writing for you? Uh, well, I, I appreciate being pressed about, <laughs> about this question. Um, and I like that you're, that you're getting right into it. Like there's, there's no warm up here. It's like, we're going straight to the hard questions. <laughs> um, well, so the first thing that I would say is that, that I think that literary convention, um, and form are, are moving targets and, uh, they're not the same over time and they're not the same across geography and nationalities. Um, and I think we all, we all recognize that without me offering examples of it. So in a certain sense, saying that you would like to be sure that there are some conventions there so that your reader can be comfortable so that then you can amuse them or surprise them or awaken them by pulling the rug out from under them, I think has to do also with thinking about the state of consensus at the time when you're when you're writing, which is an important political act. So I would really think about it like that instead of in, in relation to convention as such. And I would add there was a little note about pleasure, but I think that the the novel and and I would need to think a little bit more about this, but the novel is for me and I think has long been a site of a lot of pleasure, of a lot of readerly pleasure. And, and there are so many different options that you have, you know, for what you can offer the reader in terms of a text, a support, a prompt, um, something to read, something to feel in the novel. I'm really drawn to that quality and its quality of providing world, providing voices, providing physical and temporal extent, uh, providing a kind of occasion too, like a kind of event. The novel can be a kind of event. And I think that most of all, I love the novel as something that does have this long history of being a physical object and being that doorstop, being that thing that you rest your, you know, your coffee mug on or you use to like hold down some some papers of being this physical presence that's with people and that you can also do something with that real material, you know, substrate of pages that is immaterial and is related to fantasy and projection. Those contrasts are, for me, just endlessly exciting and, and, and generative. Mm -hmm. And I really love, and, and part of the reason that I focus on Madeline Ginz's group novel, which was 
a project that that she did in 1969 as part of this uh, convocation of artists that was arranged by the late Bernadette Mayer and, and Vito Acconci called Streetworks. Um, I bring that that up because I love her thinking about pluralness and about people and people in novels. And, and again, for me, yes, I, I set many of my books in proximity to institutions, possibly elite institutions like museums uh, or universities, but I'm, I'm very concerned. I'm doing that because I'm very concerned about people and our, our status as plural interconnected beings. And I think that the novel is a form that allows you to be with pluralness and, and with our state of pluralness, in spite of its reputation as a form that's about an individual. Well, that's a good segue to what I want to ask you next, because reaching out to you about coming on the show happened in an unusual way for me. I had just done an episode on the Crafting with Ursula series, focusing on Le Guin's essay, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, and about how this one essay of Le Guin's had influenced so many people, mainly writers, but also social scientists, uh, particularly anthropologists, and also visual artists and filmmakers and musicians. And the guest for that episode was Lydia Yuknovich, whose most recent book, Thrust, is not only deeply influenced by this theory on a formal level, but she also literally makes one of the protagonists a quote-unquote carrier within the story and enacts a sort of gathering of disparate things across time and space within the narrative itself. And after the episode came out, someone asked on Twitter for some other examples of books written in, in a carrier bag spirit and I added names to that thread like Banu Kapil and Virginia Woolf. And I could have mentioned Billy Ray Belcourt, whose most recent polyvocal book, A Minor Chorus, would very much fit in this regard. Um, but I was curious if anyone had, like Lydia, not just written in the spirit of this formally, but also brought the form in a material way into the story into the content of the book. And, and that's when I stumbled upon Life is Everywhere, which is very explicitly enacting Le Guin's theory. So before we talk about how your book does this and why, talk to us about this essay for you, uh, an essay that asks questions about the novel, the limits of what a novel has been, and which reaches toward, I think, a future of novels that might look very different than the novels we've been reading up until now. Yeah, I, I like it when you say that it reaches toward um, a future of novels, because that that's also how I read it. And I, I read it as posing a challenge uh, to the writer, especially to the writer of, of, um, of fiction, of speculative writing. So when Le Guin tells us that there hasn't been a narrative of the thing, the thing to put things in. She does tell us some things about the narrative that we already have, the narrative of the hunt, um, of the spear, of this conflict with the, with the prey where some people were squished and maybe some people were shot accidentally or, you know, some people left, but not everybody came back. 
and that is the source of 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 drama there that it's an it's a it's a narrative about about sacrifice um possibly about the the sort of like the cruelty of fate but it's it's also a narrative about uh violence and one of the points that the essay makes and it's a kind of quieter point is a point about economy so essentially like how daily life is made and and how we how how we have the things that we need to live and she says to us basically hunting is expensive like from the point of view of energy and you really can't have hunting without gathering like gathering is actually the thing that's that's making life happen so it's weird that we don't have the narrative about gathering the narrative about the bag uh the thing that we put things in because that's actually our story and i think it's important to point that out about this essay that it isn't an essay a lot of people read it as an essay that's specifically about gender so that like the spear belongs to some people and the bag belongs to other people but i don't think that that's actually the import like that she's going to this easy metaphor because we can put our you know we can put our hands on that easily and we kind of know what that is but i think she's actually pointing out there are a lot of things about life that we haven't spoken about in public and we haven't we haven't found a way to describe and i'm encouraging you to do that reader um, if you may be a writer like myself. So that's the part of the carrier bag essay that, that I feel motivated by. And so, yes, I did put a very literal bag, like a bag bag, a baggy bag in my novel. But I also wanted to try to use the novel to narrate things that often escape narration and that's that's what that's what moves me in uh Le Guin's prose in the in the in the carrier bag essay let's introduce the readers to life is everywhere in the aura of the carrier bag a little more i know this is probably a hard this is the hard book to be caught in the elevator having to explain what you wrote but talk to us about how a little bit more about how life is everywhere as a carrier bag novel formally, the way the bag is in the story as a structure that partially organizes. And, and maybe you can also talk, just give us our first nod into what would you say the story, <laughs> what would you say the story is, or give us the first teaser to the story in its broadest sense, as sort of like a, a beginning preface to the, the to our entering into this world. The shortest version, maybe, of the plot that I can give is that it's a novel about being trapped in an institution, and it, this is something that I write about a lot. But to expand a, a little bit more, <laughs> that that sort of you know nomic description. It's a novel about a person who's a who's a student who has not yet achieved full adulthood, let's say, even though maybe they should have already, who 
gets locked out of her apartment and doesn't have another source of shelter available and so has to use the university library, uh, the university library associated with the university where she's a student um, as a place to spend the night and to uh, have a place to rest until the next day. And the novel is about that, but also about what she has with her, which is a bag. And the bag has some other things in it, uh, which include books. And those books have things in them as well, and references to other books, but also to the life of uh, this, this student as it, as it has been lived. And we as readers have to go with this, this student to the library and have to be in those books in that bag for a period of time uh, until we can leave the library again. That's a really, that's really good. Um, I'm impressed that you're able to uh, wrap some words around this. So it's interesting and it's kind of funny to say that the bag is bookended by this protagonist's stories on either side, but we spend a lot of the, we do spend a lot of your book inside of the bag, reading the entirety of the things that are in the bag. I wanted to ask you about that in relation to something that you said that I'm really curious about. As sort of a preface to that, in several of the reviews of your book, Le Guin's essay is described as one that argues for preferencing form over content, a characterization that I'm not convinced is true of the essay. I'm not sure she preferences either, but if I were forced to choose, I would say she preference, preferences the opposite. Um, that what she is saying is that the world, as you've said today, is full of life experiences that don't conform to predominant inherited forms the hero's journey, the monomyth structure, or to Freytag's pyramid, rising tension, climax, denouement. But because they don't fit this form, they aren't seen as stories at all, and thus often not worthy of becoming stories, and, and even less so of being published because they aren't of the right shape or form. That her essay is not preferencing form, but instead preferencing listening to the content of one's life and imagination to find the right form for it, a form that will likely, if you do this, not be normative or conventional, perhaps not categorizable or marketable as such. Um, you describe at the end of this book that Life is Everywhere emerged as a novel or anti-novel from not being able to write the novel you wanted to write. So I was hoping we could spend a moment with that as, as you've written two well-received novels before this. So what about this novel prevented you from writing it? And when listening to the book rather than the novel form that precedes it, what about the failed book suggested this book that we're discussing today? So I just want to say something briefly, touching on the question of form and form versus content. I'm not in love with that distinction. And 
I think that in talking about the carrier bag, I, I, I think that Liquin is also, you know, pointing us toward trying something else because that distinction is a bit of a, a spear type thing. And I think that for me, what's, what's interesting and challenging is to try to find a way of writing that is recognizable to a reader, but that isn't dependent on form per se, that might be more dependent on gesture, on speech, on uh, habits of everyday life. And I think that these can enter into the novel and seem formless in a certain way. But as one reads, one learns to read those things and to re-experience them. And so in some sense, to re-experience daily life again in the presence of the, the writer, but also in the presence of all the other voices that are collected in this novel. And so if that's finding a new form, maybe I'm finding a new form in that way, but I'm not sure that, I, I'm not sure that I wanna rely on the term form. And I, I agree with you that I don't think that Le Guin's essay is about privileging form. But to, to, to go to the, um, the question of the novel that I couldn't write, um, in the past, I had some idea that I wanted to write a novel about a 19th century French man. <laughs> Uh, and who came to the US and got lost there. And I don't know why I wanted to write this. Um, I think I had some idea that he would have like a funny mustache and <laughs> um, I don't know, he would have sad eyes and it, it would be interesting to, you know, think about the, the, the scary and, and weird world of, um, you know, the mid 19th century in, in the United States. And as I was beginning to work on this novel, I realized that the things that interested me were not, you know, historical events and locations, but eccentricities of culture of that time period. And as I write in the afterward to life is everywhere, I got really interested in hair jewelry and other, you know, unusual handicrafts. I don't I don't think people are making a lot of jewelry out of hair now, although, you know, anything is possible and, and we can go look that up and find out that there's that there's a trend for that now. But um, maybe there will be after our conversation. Yeah, it will be it will be big after our conversation. So I I realized that there there was something, you know, pun intended closer to hand that was concerning me. And I wanted to find a way to turn to this and to turn to um, something having to do with making and making the world, making representations of the world. And I think it was by putting this character, this, this 19th century French poet novelist character who I was hoping to follow around you know, the US and see what he did at a greater different distance from myself and difference from myself, and 
maybe miniaturizing him in some way or making him a little bit flakier, a little bit less real, uh, a little bit more problematic and maybe shot through with other time periods that I could begin to talk about a relationship to reading and writing in the present day and present day life in a way that maybe even excited me more than this more traditional historical novel. But I could still engage with these questions around history and the sort of mystery of, of the past and how we know anything about it that obsesses me both on a kind of level of, of knowledge and history with the capital H, but also on a, on a level of, of personal life and, and, and everyday life. When we were chatting by email, I mentioned how much I, I felt like your book and Hernan Diaz's book, Trust, were animated by some of the same questions about narrative, about the novel, about truth in relation to language and identity in relation to language and, and also around gender, um, that your resulting books both play with frames and framing and nested narratives with books within books. And they both have puzzle-like qualities. Uh, I mean, beyond that, the resulting reading experience and the specifics of the book are super different. For one, I think Hernan was right that his book is one big spoiler with lots of reveals that make it hard to talk about much. So we talked a lot about form and voice, but not a lot about the story itself, even if the story itself is also in some ways about form and voice. I don't know if you agree, but I don't think spoilers are really a big question with Life is Everywhere. I think if someone had told me everything about the structure of the book and about the story of the book, it wouldn't, weirdly, it wouldn't ruin anything for me. And it wouldn't really tell someone that much about the experience of actually reading it. It would be really easy to talk the whole time with you about form and frame and only touch on the story. But because I don't think we have the same considerations as with Hernan's book, I'd like to bring story into the room a little and questions of storytelling within any given form or frame. And perhaps as a first small step in that direction, I would love to hear about gender and relationship to form or ask some questions about it. For Le Guin, the carrier bag theory of fiction was part of her journey of trying to write as a woman, or how, how she saw it that way, with a woman as a protagonist to wonder and puzzle her way forward to what a book like that would look like for her. So I have my own gender-focused question, and then I want to talk about maybe my favorite analysis of your book by Jamie Hood for Book Forum called Lucy Ives and the Me Too Novel Now, and hear your thoughts about that. But before either of those things, I was hoping you could read a short passage for us where you describe a library atrium to sort of set up my questions. The library she entered was a gift to the university from a man whose estate had been sued after his death by his granddaughter, who maintained that he had sexually abused her for decades from the age of four on. The dead man, a renowned philanthropist who had come up through the pharmaceutical industry, was also sued by his great granddaughter, niece of the first plaintiff, for the same reason. Where Aaron presently stood, 
at the base of the library given to the university by this individual was a 10,000 square foot chasm. This quantity of air enclosed by the front and back and floor and ceiling of the library was presumably also a bequest. It was nothing but vastness and also nothing. It stretched over Aaron's head, concluding with a dimly illuminated glass ceiling apparently intended to counterfeit a skylight and, Aaron supposed, therefore the sky. The philanthropist, a self-made man and alleged abuser, had engaged a famous architect to design the structure. The architect had, at first in the mid-1960s, invited librarians from around the country to inspect his plans. The librarians were not delighted by what he had in mind, which is to say the enormous hollow atrium, necessitating U-shaped floors that would severely limit the interior space that could be employed for storage of books or human-scale activity, walking, sitting, reading, writing. One consultant said that the envisioned building was a throwback to the 19th century, not merely inconvenient, but obscene. The architect was long since a celebrity and carried on. After his death, the architect was remembered not just for his glass buildings and love of the aesthetic crimes of modernism, but also for his sympathies with the Third Reich. The architect told his biographer that he had gotten too caught up with style, with all the young men in their uniform black leather, supple and polished, their trim pale hair and strict formations. He said that his worst mistake had been going to Germany and liking Herr Hitler a little too much. The architect claimed that in architecture, quote, danger is one of the greatest things to use. Danger was to him a natural building material and decoration. It was a brilliant boot around which one wrapped one's lips. The library, completed in the early 1970s, possessed the void the architect had originally desired and placed at its center as a symbol of the progress of the late 20th century. It was not as if the architect had not done this sort of thing before. His signature voids, the architect liked to say, were what allowed people to look at and recognize one another. I've been listening to Lucy Ives read from her latest book, Life is Everywhere. People might think it's strange that I picked out a passage where you're describing a library atrium, but but bear with me, everybody. Um, this this excerpt you just read does make a nod to the proverbial glass ceiling, but earlier in the book you introduce a concept I really love called the glass mountain, which you say is more infernal because it is uncreated and inherited. When I think of the glass ceiling. Of course, you can see the sky. You can see where you could aspire to go and where others, namely men in this metaphor, are able to go. And perhaps the cruelty of it is that you can see it, but you're denied access. You you know the ceiling is there uh, and you can see what's on the other side. But what I love about the notion of something glass possibly underneath our feet or in front of us as topography is that like you say, it is inherited and perhaps even something so part of the environment, literally an invisible topography that we might not know that it's actually shaping the way we move and shaping the way we might imagine we could move. And you connect this to the way we can't help but imitate pre-existing narratives. 
which links us back to your interest in the novel form, I think, but also to Le Guin's attempt to either smash the glass mountain or, or walk the other direction. But I also thought about it in terms of gender in relation to nested narratives. Um, nested narratives as a nearly impossible topography and geography to see, but also to escape. I thought about this void that you just described, this empty space that is created in the library atrium by a man who finds Nazism attractive in a library funded and named after a man who was a sexual abuser with his own grandchildren within a university that is handling the Me Too accusation of a professor uh, in the main frame of the book and doing so in very familiar self-serving bureaucratic ways. So we have our female protagonist moving through the space, which has been dreamed into being by layer after layer of abusive men and their systems. And we haven't even mentioned the questionable man in her own life, the accused professor, what's going on with her boyfriend, let alone how her writing interfaces in relation to the canon and canon formation, which I think we could imagine also getting constructed like this intangible but very present atrium. But when she goes into the study, Carol, to spend the night on the upper floors to collect herself, even there it smells like a locker room. Even in this seemingly empty space, there is an invisible but very tangible odor. Um, And I don't know, this is maybe a stretch to connect this to the Glass Mountain, which you don't mention here, but I love the formal architectural notion that seems even more insidious than the prevention of upward mobility by a ceiling, where if you're inside a never-ending nested series of male narratives or any nested series of dominant narratives, how does one begin to find ground to stand on that could feel like one's own ground? Yeah, the question of ground will be important (laughs) and without giving anything away um, ground will be found (laughs) in this in this novel Um, one one thing I want to note is that the in terms of the the protagonist's name is Erin and in terms of her personal life it's her husband not her boyfriend that we're learning about and that's important because they are together participating in the institution of marriage so we have to remember that that frame is is there in the book as well and that 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 has significance one of the ways that i think one can think about <laughs> the world if we're going to if we're going to adopt some of the methods of of life is everywhere of this novel is that What's good to try to know about isn't what we don't know, but what we don't know, we don't know. And when we're trying to find out what we don't know, we don't know, we have to use eccentric methods. And we have to try to catch ourselves by surprise. And we have to try to get new information to enter our world. And the way to start doing that is to start noticing things and specifically to start noticing things that are not treated as important to 
the traditional story. So that might mean noticing the smell of a room. Smells are traditionally not included <laughs> in um, narratives. And it's interesting, right? The, the famous Proustian cookie, right? It's a, it's a subversive, that's a subversive kind of thing. Um, but that's a pleasant smell. That's a, that's a kind of comfy smell. And there are a lot of elements that are, that, are not, that are not comfortable and which we choose not to notice because they cause us discomfort. So the, the Glass Mountain is an entity that comes to us from fairy tales. And the Glass Mountain is something that in, in a fairy tale, which is a genre for girls, I guess, it could be for anybody, but um, maybe we receive it as a genre for girls, uh, the glass mountain is uh, a structure that the hero, I guess the male hero has to climb over. But to me, it's, it's fascinating in itself. It's, it's like this incredible monument. It's like, who thought up this problem? Like a glass mountain? Really? <laughs> like, wow. Like, that's a good one. That's scary. Like that's a really scary thing, a mountain of glass. And if that's it, if that's what's in your way, man, you're in trouble. Um, it, it could get very hot. It could get very cold, certainly very slippery, probably sharp. Lots of problems with the glass mountain, but also maybe difficult to see because glass is translucent, um, at least in theory, or maybe in the, in the mon monumentality of this glass mountain, it's probably translucent. And the, the glass mountain, is an is an obstacle that's in the way but also an obstacle that has long been accepted and treated as a kind of matter of course so we might just ignore its presence in spite of its monumentality so in order to write a novel that acknowledges the terrible glass mountain or the the form the sort of formlessness of that problem and that task right like the glass mountain it isn't in neat cube shapes you can't you can't map it onto a grid um the glass mountain is going to resist quantification as much as it's going to you know resist climbing over it's going to resist narrative too it it doesn't care about that in order to write a novel that includes the glass mountain we have to we have to figure out how to describe it and how we kind of can kind of get at its contours and i think that sort of metaphorically at least of a part with what you're talking about about how do we tell a story in a textual space that is defined by a canon that was largely composed by dudes. So how do we bring language in that differs from that language? How do we bring experience in that hasn't previously been touched by words? How can we begin to do that? Do we just start all over again? Or what do we do? And for me, again, to go back to the thing about smell, I think smell is a really powerful way of getting at the kind of 
sensorial work that I try to do with writing because my writing is very much about sensorial work and very much about getting you to imaginatively see things or smell things or hear things that that aren't aren't real but which nevertheless require your real senses and your real mind to produce getting you to try to do that kind of work using yes tools that come from that canon but that i'm putting together in ways in which that canon tells me i should not put them together that you're not allowed to do them that way we decided that already it doesn't work that way um and in this book we have we have too much writing we have in certain ways too much text and not enough action but it turns out that that text is all action and in reading we're really doing something we're really putting the events together. And so that's a way that I can work within. And, and, and this is just this is like on a real level. There are there are there are a lot of constraints on me as a as a as a writer. Right. Like I actually have very limited space to move in. And so what I do in this book is 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 quite calculated with the materials that I that are available to me, what I can try to show you what I can try to show to the reader is 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 constrained and I have to try to misuse materials to in some sense kind of like cast a shadow or. Um, create another kind of effect that will bring something into the space of the novel that quite literally hasn't been in the novel slash a novel before. Because I believe that by casting that shadow, talking to you again about a, about a smell or something like that, that I'm, that I'm doing something that isn't sanctioned by the, the novel tradition. And that is somehow bringing us into a space where we can talk about experience again, where we can try to we can find ourselves in that very strange space of experiencing something that comes before expression or comes before uh, convention. And if we can do that, we can learn about the parts of us that are maybe not yet overtaken by those um preceding things because i believe that there are parts of us that are not yet overtaken that's that's me as an optimistic person like i i believe that there are that there are parts of us that fiction can give us access to um that have enormous enormous potential for um for for thought for for revelation and i suppose for uh, possibly for for action as well. Well, let's let's stay one more moment with story in relation to the Glass Mountain, and also this idea. I love this self description of the book having too much text and not enough action, but also that 
all the text is action. F- formally, on the macro level, uh, the bulk of the book is literally the content of our protagonist's bag, uh, which includes our protagonist's novel and her novella, both rejected by a literary agent, which of course itself calls into question the quote-unquote fitness of their forms in the literary marketplace. Um, It also includes a checked-out library book written by the professor who's under the Me Too investigation. And, And just to loop that into what you've said previously about the novel you didn't write, and wanting to have more distance or have a more a miniaturized version of your French 19th century mustachioed uh, <laughs> protagonist, that checked out library book written by the professor who's under the Me Too investigation is a biography of this of this person. So he's he's in the novel, in the bag, in someone else's biography. And there's also a very large and very late unpaid bill that I want to come back to at some point. But one of the thrills, I think, is how the book moves, not just in this formal or macro way, but on the level of the sentence and the paragraph too, especially the opening where we start not with a character, but with the history of botulism, its relation to blood sausages and the discovery of that eventually, the failed attempts to use it as a biological weapon, the development of Botox, and with the bacteria finally landing in the face of one of the professors at the school, a professor who's proximal to the Me Too scandal, a woman with a pretty immobile face due to all of her Botox treatments. So what I like about it is that for a brief time, botulism is how the story moves forward, the way a bacteria ends up serving the function of a protagonist and that we've spanned more than a millennia in the opening pages, which is also an interesting way that you're, you're dealing with time. But also it is interesting as a reader to have our expectations mirrored back into our face, sort of like what Shelley Jackson suggested with Wittgenstein's Mistress, I think. Because when the bacteria ends up in the face of Dr. Faith Ewer, and we stop focusing on Clostridium botulinum and start focusing on her in the world, I immediately think as a reader, okay, this is the protagonist. And then I witness my own mind starting to organize its expectations on what that means and what I expect from Faith Ewer, probably because of the uncreated and inherited uh, invisible topography of of what's come before. But she ultimately gets left behind too, and it's not until page 40 or so that we figure out who our protagonist is. But I don't think we can ever rest easy that it will remain so. And of course, once we enter the bag of our protagonist, all bets are off until we re-emerge, re-emerge on the other side. I don't know if this provokes anything for you about what you just said, but if it does, I'd be interested in hearing about it. Yeah, well, the question of scale in relation to the novel is important to me. On the one hand, because novels are quote unquote big books, but on on the other, because one of the ways that they work or one of their fundamental 
mechanisms is to tell us how big the past is and how big the present is and how big the future is and also to establish things about how big other big stuff like the nation or God uh, relate to those other big things. And for me, I, I wanted to begin this book in some ways with a very blustery, you know, like, hey guys, like it's time for history. Like, let's do some big stuff. But then it, it turns out that we're actually gonna focus on something microscopic, um, which is botulinum toxin, which also is something which has a very big effect in that it is one of the most lethal naturally occurring poisons on the planet. So the toxin is something that is produced by this bacteria. And it's funny because it turns out that this bacteria who knew it has an aesthetics. Well, it doesn't really have an aesthetics, but it turns out that it plays this incredible role in contemporary aesthetics in that it is the key ingredient in Botox, this cosmetology technique. And in fact, that technique is something we see the evidence of on faces around us all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on another level, like, there, this is, there are no shade to people with Botox. It, it, it's also just like, of, it's of interest. <laughs> like, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and that Botox on its way from being a toxin that occurred in the anaerobic environment of cured meats and that people then ate and it caused a reaction in their bodies that made it impossible for them to breathe essentially and then they they died because their brain wasn't able to make um, them breathe in the way that it does that it existed in human history in this state but then it was recognized as something that could be employed as um, a biological weapon and it was synthesized as a biological weapon in large quantities during the second world war but then it was never used so it was since it was successfully synthesized into a weapon, but then for very strategic reasons, it ended up languishing at Johns Hopkins and there was kind of rediscovered by people who were interested in ophthalmology and other applied uses of something that would prevent movement in the face. So um, prevent inadvertent twitches and stuff like that. And it's from there that it becomes this cosmetic product, which then enters into everyday life and enters into the category known as beauty. Another very important uh, site for the novel and for literature and for art. And this story is funny <laughs> on the one hand, but it's also an object lesson in the interrelation of these, these different big things that we often see in novels. And I wanted to just kind of get that over with. Like, I wanted to be like, okay, here are all the big things <laughs> that we deal with in novels. Let's get it over with. And then let's get to people. Okay, we have people. 
and what are they what are they going to do but just because we have people doesn't mean that we're ready for a protagonist yet like let's look at people like let's think about that a little bit let's look at affect let's look at how the novel can do affect and um you know let's also have a kind of inversion of the tropes of suspense at the same time so usually when we have suspense we're waiting for something important to happen in the case of this novel we're just waiting for the protagonist to show up you know we're like you're like tapping your watch like maybe you think that the protagonist is already here um you're not really sure and i think getting all of that out of the way kind of like it's like a first date situation we're kind of kind of like get some of that stuff out of the way so that we can really get down to intimacy in the rest of the book yeah well i feel like as a reader it's the opposite in the sense that uh it doesn't feel like getting stuff out of the way it feels like it sets up a, a range of possible violations that may again happen throughout even when they're not happening we have this sense that they might happen if we think back to shelly jackson's rug getting pulled out like so okay you've you've demonstrated what this anti-novel or novel might do or not do um who knows what it'll do next i mean it has that added valence at least for me but i i wanted to i wanted to um stay one more moment with your notion of the book having too much text and then connect that to something that Jamie Hood said in Book Forum and curious about your thoughts about it. Uh, but the first thing it made me think of this too much text was my discussion with Daniel Mendelssohn, where in that discussion we're comparing and contrasting the Greek mode of storytelling and the Hebrew mode of storytelling. The Greek, which he characterizes as optimistic, in the sense that it's motivated by the belief that language, if you use enough of it, can succeed at describing. And one example he gives is Herodotus and how for him, in order to tell the story of the Greek victory over the Persian Empire, he first feels the need to narrate the entire history of Persia itself. And in order to narrate the entire history of Persia, there needs to be an entire chapter on the history, customs, and architecture of Egypt since Egypt was part of that empire. You do this too all the time. For instance, when Faith asks Isabel a question, Isabel is distracted about a future class. So these are two teachers. She's distracted by a future class where she will be teaching the Duchess of Langeais by Balzac. And instead of us learning simply that she is distracted, because we're sort of feeling like Faith might be the protagonist, so we sort of also expect maybe to be in Faith's point of view, but instead of just learning that Isabel is distracted and that's it, we instead disappear into Isabel's deliberation about this other thing for quite a while about this Balzac book before coming back to the conversation with Faith. But I think your motivation is different than the Greeks. For one, we really see how much what we choose to describe or not and how long we describe something is really deeply shaped by norms and conventions. 
and we see this very clearly because you start violating all these norms and conventions. But Jamie Hood at Book Farm also had an interesting take on your book that I wanted to hear your thoughts on. And here are a couple excerpts lifted out of her review. What fascinates about Ives's maneuvering is these interstices and echoic functions are where the psychic and narrative excesses of trauma, its untellable too muchness, are reckoned with. To the hero, rape is a data point, but trauma, like story, nests and wriggles, reemerging in unanticipated ways, a wild oat seed being wrestled from its husk again and again. Trauma is a haunting that exceeds the horizons of storytelling. Rape severs the subject from her body, disorients temporality. Ives represents this as a formal problem, attempting to narrativize trauma again and again, allowing these attempts to be messy, to falter, to fail. We must allow the novel to be capacious, to hold many different kinds of reckonings, many traumas. I was really, I, I found that review persuasive. My, my example isn't, doesn't really connect well with what she's saying. But there is this sense of, um, I love the way I feel like you mirror back to me as a reader what I'm expecting when you do these things, when you switch heads and then linger on something beyond what normatively is to happen. But I wonder if there's this other thing too, this too muchness of the untellable that maybe all of this extra text is like, as you said before, we need to start noticing things. Like when you walk through the atrium, which is invisible and, and you start unpacking what that atrium is, that maybe the noticing and then the text that results from that noticing is about finding our way out. But did you have any thoughts on the on that um, book forum review in this regard to too much text? You've said a lot of things that I want to respond to. And I find myself first, I want to talk a little bit about what you're saying about Herodotus as a writer of history, a style of writing in which because we touch on the history of a nation, and there might be buildings that are associated with that that history, then we need to talk about architectural styles and that kind of attempt to be exhaustive or encyclopedic. And I want to distinguish my style from that style a little bit. Um, where Greek history writers are concerned, I would be more, I'm, I'm more of a, a student of uh, Thucydides um, for anyone to whom that that distinction has any meaning. And um, I'm very interested in what can be done with a sentence. And I'm interested in the ways in which the sentence contains all of the meaning of the text in, in which it appears because of its, you know, its, its outward sort of radiating into the the book in which it's taking place. It's part of a, a net, it's part of a system. And I often have the feeling when I'm writing a sentence that I'm working on another part of the book completely, even though I'm writing a sentence in one place in the book. 
so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the interrelation of different parts, but not in a logic of exhaustion <laughs> of all things, which is also a kind of logic of, of scarcity, I think, but in a logic of rhymes and return and in time travel, in a sense, that we can start out in one place and find a kind of tunnel through to another. And that you can find yourself reading one part of the book and realize that you're actually reading another part of the book at the same time that you may have already read, but then you're reading it again in a new way. And this book is designed throughout to have these kinds of, of tunnels that bring you through almost like a, like a hyperlink. But I, but I think um, the, the, the tunnel or maybe the root structure or something like that is maybe a better metaphor. In mentioning that, I think there's also something delicious about that, that we can be in one space and find ourselves also slipping into another space at the same time. And when we're given something like the content of uh, Isabel, Professor Isabel Child's um, thinking about the, the Balzac story, the Duchesse de Langeais, that story is a very complex story about masochism, about obsession, about adultery, and about doing something transgressive in one's life and whether one is actually free to transgress. And the questions that Balzac poses in that novel and that we learn about through Isabel's uh, mental synopsis of that novel will recur in Life is Everywhere. And so it is a kind of translating, everything that we're offered is a, is a possible translating device. So can be used as a kind of decoder or a way of thinking about other events that we will learn about as the, the novel goes on. And when it comes to the question of trauma, which is to say experience that can never be fully relived nor fully overcome. Experience that we can't fully have and which we can't fully cease having. There's a versioning of that question of repetition in this book throughout and a style of reading that attempts to make our tendency to relive events more intelligible. And I'm very concerned with that. I'm less concerned with absolute solutions. I don't know if absolute solutions or eradication of, of problems are possible, but I do think that we can learn to read differently. And by having a tolerance for a multiplicity of interpretations and for using what is near to hand to interpret and, to, and seeing how things repeat, 
I think that we can learn something about the parts of ourselves that shy away from being fully known. So I'm very interested in showing that, showing edges of that in the, in the characters too, which is why at the beginning of the book, I don't want to just go straight into the protagonist and be like, okay, guys, here's the protagonist. Like, let's go. Everything's simple. Like we know who's important here. That to me would be a very, uh, I think, limited way of addressing what I think uh, an interesting kind of subjectivity to see in a, in a novel is. And even when we are with this protagonist, Erin, she's very porous to other stories. And of course, once we see into her bag, there are lots of other stories there as well. I find the, the, the description of the writing as echoic to go, to go back to Jamie's review accurate. I guess there's something, there's something that I, that I, that I hope to do. And, and I don't, you know, I can't say for sure that I've achieved this, but I guess I, I hope in a way to show that trauma is not uh, extraordinary, that it is, it, it's bound up in, uh, in, in who we are as, as human beings. Like it's something we have in common with each other. <laughs> and I think sometimes the way that term circulates now makes it a little bit more difficult to, to notice that. The question for me is, is how are we going to navigate its ubiquity? Uh, and that, that's a question for, for everybody. <laughs> I mean, it's like, a, it, it, it's not a question um, for some people. It's a question for everybody. So I hope to, on the one hand, discuss things that I see as, as part of systems that are in the world as we, as we live it. But on the other hand, to displace the way that we think about events or to kind of move the way that we think about events to different sort of typography so that we have, we have better access to that thinking. And, and that we can really like feel it and look at it and think about how we want to live in relation to it. Well, I kind of want to take this into the realm of character and self a little bit and into this, into a question I have, I guess, when you talked about how say the Duchess of Langeais could be among a million other things could be used as a way to translate the text as a whole almost like this holographic aspect that we could pick any part and shine a laser through it and recreate the entire book. But there's this notion of masks that seems to echo through the book that's that you start us out with, with the botulism and Botox and this immobile face of the teacher. And at the very beginning, when we are with Faith and her frozen face, 
before we know faith isn't a major character, when you said earlier that you're exploring affect and other things other than protagonist, the book mentions studies about how our well-being can improve when we can't physically frown. And I, that, that made me go to, to Google, of course. <laughs> and even though the quality of the research is still being debated in the real world, in the real world there are psychiatrists promoting Botox for mental health because of these studies. There, there are these studies that if you can't frown, your well-being can improve. And I think it sets a tone for the novel that this is put forth as something true early on as it orients us to selfhood in a really weird and generative way, I think. Her face is a constructed thing, but really it also foregrounds how every character is a constructed figure in the text, that there could be this dissonance between how she feels and what she expresses on her face but that perhaps what is constructed on her face will ultimately also affect how she feels. And that points to something really uncanny and unnerving about the notion of self, which perhaps is an endless series of masks. When you wrote your piece for Freeze about Sophie Cal and your phone call with her, where you quote an art historian who describes Cal's work as undermining the foundations of her person and quote she only gives shape to this mask in order to dispel it as an illusion it makes me think about the magic mantra in your book it does not matter how you feel and also the girl hamlet who has a mask of makeup and how in one of the dream sequences mrs stick wears a rubber mask over her face of goo and her shapeless body is in a body casing like a blood sausage. And then all of the performances of gender, how Charles Le Gouffre, the 19th century French man that we have discussed, is called a rare Janus, someone rumored to be a woman before a man, about how Hamlet in this book is a character who is a woman and about the history of women playing Hamlet, about how fashionable that cross-dressing was in, in the France of the 1830s in Robert Herbsweet's book, In Her Bag, and on and on and on. But I think most, perhaps most amazingly, is that Aaron's two rejected books that we get to read in full are both autofiction, so we're getting the autofiction of a fictional character. Um, when I see all of this and think about the mask in relation to what is underneath, I guess I just w want to hear more about your questions or your notions around self and character and anything else that comes up for you as I reflect this all back. Well, just because something's made up doesn't mean that it's not real. So <laughs> that's a funny thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny thing that there is kind of a one-way street there, right? 
Well, masks are fun. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) it would make sense that we, that we, that we like them. And it, you know, what you, what you point out about uh, this book containing an, an, an auto, a, a pair of auto fictions written by a character. Um, I'm glad you say that. Uh, you know, indeed. Um, you know, we have we have two two auto fictional works there, and it interests me to think about what happens when you ask a character to make something. And I I think that something different happens when you ask a character to make something than when you have a character do something. And this might be related to the carrier bag theory. It might just be my own weird obsession. Not totally sure. Uh, Pale Fire might be a carrier bag (laughs) fiction. It's like lots of things are possible here. It interests me that a character could write something that might not be quote unquote good enough to be published but in the context of a fiction what that character writes is still very interesting and it's actually necessary to us as readers because in this novel in order to find out who Erin is and what has happened to her we need to read her fictions like we need them they're they're serving a, a purpose there that is different from i think the purpose of other fictions that we might encounter in the world like we really have to find out what happens on multiple <laughs> levels because otherwise we won't know what happens <laughs> in the book and it's funny to me to put that pressure on fiction. It's an absurd kind of pressure to put on fiction because fiction's just fiction. It doesn't matter. It's made up, right? It doesn't matter. But this, you know, takes me back to my earlier point that just because something's made up doesn't mean it's not real. And it, and you know, that's that's also um, a thing about the 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 glass mountain, right? The glass mountain is a very strange human creation. <laughs> but just because it's artificial <laughs> doesn't mean it's not real. And as we go around in the world, we, we encounter, we largely encounter artificial things. And I, I, I guess there's a, there's a kind of perverse side of me that is you know, that's angry about the fiction designation, like that goes on the back of the book that's like, this is fiction. (laughs) And I'm like, well, but it's all fiction. (laughs) So why this one? But, but I, but I get it. And I, and I, I also love that mask because that's a mask too, right? Like, is it, you know, it's a, it's a mask that that's called fiction. Do you have a, a, a strange phrasing you would put on the novel? A genre, like a, a sort of genre categorizer. Um, like Billy Ray Belcourt for his memoir, he said he would have called it 
poems and essays. And he would have called his latest polyvocal book a sociological fiction, which I thought was interesting in, in yeah. both accounts. Obviously, you can understand why those might not land on the book from like a marketer's perspective. But perhaps it also points to a way in which he is deeply unsatisfied with the categories that are available. I mean, I might say something like a book. A book. A book. Yeah. I, this would be a great time to hear uh, something else from the book, the book that is not a novel or a fiction, but a book. Um, <laughs> so I was hoping maybe you would read a short section from the first part of the book. And this would be with, with us, with Aaron as the protagonist, not yet inside of Aaron's bag. Something had happened to Aaron. She was not exactly sure what this thing was, but she knew that she moved and lived under its influence. It was sluggish and thick, like the plot of a pre-millennium video game. It was vague, yet absolute. As far as this thing was concerned, it did not matter that Aaron had perceptions and thoughts, that time continued to unfold and Aaron was conscious in it. This thing was a net, a gate, a spell. It had always been with Aaron, but the quality of its presence was changing. She had been afraid before. She was more afraid now. The thing tightened. At the same time, Aaron knew that the thing was promised to her. It would occur. This gave her a certain amount of comfort. Sometimes she felt that she was upside down in the ocean, attempting to swim up, but hitting sandy bottom pawing at an obstacle that was supposed to be pliant air. At least the obstacle was real, or if not real, then there. It didn't make sense that it was there, and yet it was. It was there for her, sedimentary and cruel. It belonged to her in its way. A month and change earlier in September, Erin had learned that the person she had lived with and slept with for the past decade, to whom she was married, although that was hardly the most salient fact of their relationship, which had begun when they were both in their early 20s, was, as in the well-known American myth, living a double life. She had picked up his phone. There it was, simple as that. There had been no delay. She had confronted him immediately. It was like diving and drowning. A force did this, a mass, a spirit lived. It was not her. Her husband's name was Ben, and he had gone away. She was beginning to learn all that she had not permitted herself to see. This was psychedelic, this period. It was an inversion, vivid, full of spontaneous visions. Aaron learned that underneath what we name, in the sentences we live alongside and within, there is something else. We can feel it when we speak, when we attempt to describe what happens and the people we know, but we will not talk about it. What is underneath is another version of what happens and another version of the people. We know these events and these people too, but they are not a part of what we believe or say. We don't believe it and we don't believe we live it. We don't say it. All the same, we live it anyhow. Erin had gone into the underneath. This was who she was now. 
It felt muddy in her lungs, weird air. Ben had been living a second, possibly realer life with a woman he worked with. They had sex at work and in the woman's apartment. It had been almost a three-year affair. As much as Erin was now basking in dreck, she tried to remain agnostic. She was in agony, but she attempted not to characterize these events, not to understand them in relation to herself. Ben had left the apartment weeks ago, maybe it was a month now, and on the few occasions when they had talked on the phone, he told her that she had driven him into this way of living, that had, it had not been within his power to choose, that the insufficient affection she gave him forced him to seek alternate comfort. She was a bad woman, but he loved her. It was a difficult thing being married to and loving a bad woman, whom one loved so much. Aaron had no idea how awful it was. It was so awful. We've been listening to Lucy Ives read from Life is Everywhere. I wanted you to read that because of the notion of, of what's happening underneath language. And I wanted to think for a moment about language in relationship to self and whether language could also be a mask, a mask that eventually shapes the self, um, much like the Botox research, perhaps. I wanted to bring up your recent book of image text with Matthew Connors called The Poetics, which, like so many of your texts, has this inverted meaning in the title. Much like your chapbook novel is full of poetry, The Poetics is mainly meditating on narrative. And The Poetics is very much a carrier bag book. Matthew Connors is isolating and photographing object by object, every single thing in his car. We get photograph after photograph of them, which are periodically interrupted by essays by you. In thinking about language in relation to these objects, you say, we are ever at the ready to construct objects in certain ways, conceptually speaking, as objects of a story, as tools in a given kind of narrative work. We believe we know where they began and where they end. And also you say, how can poetical, fictional, or experimental literary modes give us new ways of reading and writing history? And also, given the wildly heterogeneous nature of present time, how can we restore to the past some of its former heterogeneity? And how can we grant it the discontinuity it once held. Could anyone ever hope to write such a narrative? Would it even be narrative? And the way I began thinking about narrative, it was the problem. The problem was narrative. The problem was narrative as such did not exist in life as such. And these items from the car were never I would contend, part of a clearly continuous space and time. How would I establish any way their proper, exact, correct distance or proximity to one another? But what really leapt out to me as fascinating was your description of what fiction was for you. You say, quote, When I write, I employ a system of mirrors. It is not that they are real mirrors, that you would ever be able to see them in real life, 
but they entrap images of the world all the same. This is the sort of appliance fiction is for me. I use it to look away from something and still perceive it. Fiction is a way of seeing around corners, a system of mirrors designed to catch images of what I'm not able or permitted to see in my actual life. I am not exactly or always telling stories. I tell superimpositions, overlaps, coincidences, delays. This is my thinking, not diegesis, but recurrence, a style of conjunction, an elevation of what remains unfinished. We can only determine how things look if we see them through one another. This is super interesting to me, this idea of looking away to perceive or only determining how things look by seeing them through one another. So that when we read these lines from the Los Angeles Times review of the book, quote, we know, for example, that Cody, the philandering husband character in one of Aaron's manuscripts, is very similar to Aaron's husband. We are accessing her grief in another register, one that perhaps should feel more detached but actually is more immediate and sad. This quote from the review, I think, points to something very weird about the self in relation to art making and storytelling. But I would really just love to have you talk more about the Hall of Mirrors in relation to language and fiction, because I've never heard this described this way. I've, I've never spoken to a writer who's characterized fiction in this way. Well, one important thing about Erin's writing and how it exists as uh, an expression of her experience is that her hands, her fingertips, have touched a keyboard and hit keys to make these words come into existence, or she wrote them with a pen. But she wrote them with her hand, her fictional hand, but she wrote them with her hand. And so if as a reader, we want to know what Aaron lived, we could listen to a narrative about what happened to her. We could listen to a narrator describing that in the third person or the first person. And in fact, in her novel, there is a narrator who speaks in the in the first person uh, and in the third person in, in, in her first manuscript. But we have access to what she really wrote. So she's fictionalizing, but she's really the one who is fictionalizing. It's not me. It's not me. It's not someone else or a narrator who's telling us what what happened to her. It's, it's her. So if you want to know what happened to Erin, she's going to let you know in her book, in her own way. And the mirrors that I'm talking about in, in the poetics and in those statements about how fiction works for me are mirrors that are arranged in the way that mirrors are arranged in a periscope. So the way that you're able to see around a corner 
or you know in a submarine a periscope goes up and you can see you know what's out what's outside what's above the the surface of the water is a system of of mirrors uh, a mirror that is arranged on the diagonal with respect to the view into the world that then reflects downward onto another mirror that is also arranged on the diagonal so that you when you look into the periscope you can see what's around the corner or um you know above the above the water and in this novel i think to get at the experience of the character we need something like a periscope so in other words i don't treat the character as an entity that's out in the real world whose experience is entirely transparent to me. I, as the writer, may not know everything that has happened to them, but there are technical affordances that I can use in order to learn more. So if I have the character right, I can know what the character has written down and I can know more about them. I'm not saying that I can't write a narrative and have a narrator talk about the, the character. That's precisely what I do in two thirds of the book. There's a third person narrator who tells you what goes on with Erin. But I happen to think that we can learn more about her by reading her own writing. Again, writing that she has written with her own hand, language that she has chosen herself. There's a way in which metaphorically, this is a series of mirrors or like a series of masks that reflect onto each other. And so we get something, we get something back that has a more kind of intimate view onto this source, in spite of that source being, being fictional in, it, in, it, in itself. Your editor, who's worked with you on your last three books, said that this book proposes a new kind of systems novel. And she says, it's about how individual selves act and are acted upon inside various systems, family, marriage, academia, gender, society. But it also reveals the instability of our notions of selves and of systems and shows a new way to narrate the relationship between the two. But I wonder if it's also about the limits of language. And what I mean by this is that you've talked in interviews about your sadness, about how writing is not linearly related to the thing described, that at one point you had hoped or believed that language would have a straightforward relation to the thing it refers to, and that you haven't fully gotten over that it doesn't which sort of made me wonder if the system of mirrors is also sort of a compensatory system for that sadness, like a prosthetic aid for language itself. Yeah, and in some ways it might be about trying to look in to language's home <laughs> <laughs> or trying to be at home with language. Yeah. If I could get there. Well, thinking of the system of mirrors to reflect and perceive what you can't see otherwise, thinking about them as a sort of an aid to increase what we can perceive. And also Renee Gladman's description of your, your story collection as 
you making her feel like she's in an alternate ordinary place. I wondered about the role of the imagination and the surreal and the fantastic for you, because this system seems to be interested in perception, in mimesis, in representation, rather than the imagined and the invented. So does your sadness that language in the world isn't a one-to-one correspondence. You do play a lot with the fake and the true in other ways, if those are the right words. We get made-up historical figures, so much so that when you tell me in this book that the real person, Paul Elwar, wrote letters to a lover with his own semen, I'm at first sure this is made up until I go and look it up and discover to to my horror and delight that it's true. Or when I read about the German surrealist Hannah Darbelvin and her form of graphic writing beyond words, I think she could be made up. Uh, and I even think she, at, at the time as I'm reading, I even think she might be inspired by Renee Gladman, when in fact she also is real. Uh, among made-up figures at the same time. But I wonder what your own philosophy around imagination rather than perception and trying to see and represent something that is seeable with these mirrors, what it is, or what is what your thoughts are about things that aren't actually seen. Like, for instance, Le Guin. For Le Guin, the imagination is what makes us most human that she can imagine not having opposable thumbs, but not not having her imagination. And, and when she says, children know perfectly well that unicorns aren't real, but they also know that books about unicorns, if they are good books, are true books, she is often saying these things as part of an argument for the fantastic being our primary literature, whether... Don Quixote or Hamlet or Beowulf or the Odyssey all the way up until the Industrial Revolution. But where or how does the fully imagined fit or not at all into what you are trying to do or the questions that you have that animate your writing? One way of of getting at this is that this book as a whole is offered to readers in a spirit of friendship. And for me, that is where the imaginative act takes place. In the imagining of the possibility of someone coming to read this book, a book that is impossible to write, a book that is impossible to write because of its refusal to land on a tone that creates a clear distinction between what is real and what is made up. And the book's endless generation of new ways of reading and new ways of reading its own narrative and the events that have taken place in it. There is, for example, in Aaron's second novel, a series of multiple choice questions that ask the reader to 
choose between and among various interpretations of what's taken place, offering different interpretations of the text. To me, the act of imagination is in imagining a world in which I can give this to someone and I can say here, like, it's so crazy that anything has ever happened. And we can read this book together and laugh at that. And this book is, in fact, in real life, dedicated to my best friend. Well, partly the reason I asked this question is because of my own experience as a reader of this text. When I spoke to Hernan Diaz about his books, we talked about how as readers, we give more authority to the outer frame of a story. In other words, if in a book, as happens in Diaz's first book, In the Distance, we begin with someone telling a story around a fire. And then for a long time, we are in that story being told. So long, perhaps, that we maybe even forget that it is a story being told around a fire when we return at the end to the fireside, we feel as if we're returning to a more real place, even though that so-called truer place is as constructed and invented as the story within it. Your book is structured this way in some regards, with Erin's world being the quote-unquote real world, where she's locked out of her house and we travel into the contents of her bag for the majority of the book, and then come out again into Aaron's world at the end. But you trouble the stability of the outer frames. Inside her bag, one of the books, as I've mentioned, is a biography of a fictional, though in this world real, French author named Charles Le Gouffre, written by the quote-unquote real professor accused of sexual improprieties in the world of Aaron. At one point in this real world, Aaron goes looking for the one book that Lagufra wrote, a book called Passepartout, which really should be the name of your book, as it both means a master key or skeleton key, a key that gives you access to everything, much as your narrative goes everywhere, but it is also a method of framing a picture. But this is really my long way of saying as a reader, my favorite moment in the book is when Aaron acquires this book that's mentioned in the, one of the books in her bag and starts translating it in real time for us uh, in the locker room smelling study carol on the top floor of the void-filled evil atrium of the library. But this book is a magical tale. It's a fantasy. So it's not just imagining things that could be real, but that aren't. It's, it's clearly in another realm, and it's amazing and utterly transporting, I think. And in many ways, because of its fantastical nature, it felt like it goes places around the status of women, around representation of women, that the rest of the book is addressing, but maybe circling. Uh, and I guess... I just wanted to hear more about this brief 
dalliance in the, in the fantastical that we get, um, what you see it doing in the book or, or any other thoughts that you have about what I'm bringing up around this. Thank, thank you first for pointing this out because it, I, I, for a second, I thought I was very serious. Like I thought I was a very serious writer, but you're reminding me that I am very silly too. <laughs> and, and indeed, you know, I do want the reader to come to this part of the book and sort of like put their feet up and be like, yeah, like, it was great. <laughs> it's fun now. Like, <laughs> you know, um, and particularly because I'm now asking the reader to read like intertext number six or seven. <laughs> so like, I really have to, I have to, I have to offer something good. And quickly to go back when you, when you say the title of that, that, that past part two, or the, the title of this uh, novella that Aaron translates should be the title of the novel it is the title of the novel. What do you mean? I, I mean simply, and this is a spoiler alert, it, the, the thing, I mean, to the extent that this novel can have spoilers, this Life is Everywhere is Aaron's translation oh. of Past Part Two. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Somehow that flew over my brain. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, textual tennis I going on. I love that. It is the title <laughs> of the novel. Bravo. It is a <laughs> we 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 met each other there for a second yeah um, that's yeah. so great <laughs> so yeah I, and so this is a this is an without giving too much away this is an, a novella that's allegedly written by charlie um you know charlou democrete lagouf who is this very esoteric literary figure, amateur photographer of the 19th century, who has been studied by Roger Herbsweet, who is uh, Aaron's erstwhile academic advisor. And his novel, his novella, his one, you know, his one work, uh, you know, like, why did he only write one? We don't know, is a story about a fragment of statuary that goes on adventures. And in some way, it's a chance for me to recover, you know, that hope to, to write um, a kind of picaresque about something going around in um, 19th century America and doing stuff in a, in a kind of miniature style. But I'm also, you know, I think that uh, I think that 19th century statues are, are pretty interesting and they have a lot to to teach us about um, how we how we see and um, how we tell stories. Strangely, uh, they're pretty they're pretty iconic um, and they affect how we see the past. But it was fun for me to think about people becoming obsessed. So this is a past part two. This this novella is a story of obsession. And it's a story of, of a series of people who become obsessed with a severed hand, like a statue's marble hand that has become severed. And they think that it is alive, essentially. And it is about how that statue change that statue's hand changes their lives. <laughs> 
briefly before becoming reincorporated into the the world in a in a new way such that you david and i might might see it as we as we walk about american cities we might see that hand again so there is a there's a fantastical element and a silly element and there's you know there's like pirates and a lot of dramatic language and stuff but there's also a, a little bit of a more serious meditation on allegory and how allegory works and you know how it is that we come to have certain kinds of commonplaces uh that we that we that we share um, both in language and and visually in the in the in the civic scene, you know, as they say. So the the other thing I wanted to spend a moment with is Hannah Darboven and her non connotative graphic writing, and with surrealism, something you seem to be attracted to frequently in your nonfiction writing and your art criticism. I love some of the Darboven quotes none of which I know for sure are, are real. Um, the event is a construct of fiction, and it was pure writing, always writing, but not meaning. And this description of Hannah Darboven makes me think of you. Hannah didn't want to say things. She wanted to show what the saying was doing. Talk, talk to us about her, why she's a comfort to Aaron in this book. And by extension, what she might mean for you? Yeah, that's a that's a hard question because I think that Aaron's obsession with Hannah Darboven is a place in this novel where I've I've given a character <laughs> a quality of my of myself, and it's kind of a weird <laughs> a weird um, choice because I so want. Hannah Darboven to be here in this book because I I think her life is amazing and I think her art is amazing as well. And one of the reasons that I love her art is that she made rooms. So she made work that in some ways is very minor because a lot of it consists of writing a loop every day that looks like a letter, but is not in fact a letter. It doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning. It could be a kind of marking of time. And in fact, she was very interested in time, in calendars, in periodicals, and in the ways in which we mark time through publication or mark time publicly. And she was very interested in how we parse history and what feels historical. And the rooms that she made are often made of these very minor marks repeated over and over again. And so when you go into a space that contains her marks, it will include things that have been marked or canceled by her uh, different kinds of print ephemera. They might be postcards or calendars, or she also worked with musical notation. She's a classically trained musician and, and composed music as well. You see something that's composed of 
minor things, cheap materials, and also found objects, like kitschy found objects. But you have the sense that you are within something that has a greater import that be, can become manifest to you if you linger with it. And she gives you access to a feeling of historical time. It's not exactly a grand feeling of historical time. It's certainly a strange feeling of historical time. You know, other ad adjectives I might use to describe it would include lopsided, uh, also funny sometimes, uncanny, maybe mesmerizing, hypnotizing. And there's a relationship to these loops and the bombing of Hamburg and these things called radar chaff. Could you speak to the radar chaff? That was so fascinating that that among a million details that you share with us from from history. But this was this was fascinating to me, the sort of writing that is graphic writing and how it's related to a, a way to interfere with a certain type of communication during the bombing of the city. This might also go back to the question about how you can read trauma in this book or in relation to writing in general. And again, this is this is speculation on the part of Erin in her autofictional work. But Erin associates this very simple, almost graphic technique for jamming the radar systems of uh, your your enemy that was used during the Second World War by the Allies, specifically um, in relation to the firebombing of Hamburg, which is a, a, a truly horrific event. What, what happens is that it's like a very simple method, which is just to release reflective material into the air so that the path of any kind of echolocational system, and again, this is also related to the technique of the novel, is, is redirected um, and doesn't meet the target of um, a, another body moving through the air, which might be an, an airplane that's, that's armed with um, armaments that it's about to release on the city. And I talk about, by way of, of Aaron, a kind of idea that I, that I have, that Aaron has, about how this technology uh, which is a, it's a technology of disruption and of rewriting uh, could be related to how one writes about experience that is too big or overwhelming. Um, and that we might either have the experience of not having an experience or, you know, discover that we don't know, we don't know to go back to what I, I was saying earlier. And we need, again, some kind of technique to 
reach that experience, however imperfectly. And paradoxically, there is something about Hannah Darboven's asemic, not semantically meaningful writing that captures experience very vividly, in my opinion, and, and also in Aaron's opinion, because I've shared my <laughs> opinion with Aaron. Um, and that it's a way that we can think about the relationship of writing and, and, and history to also to go back to some of the earlier things that, that we can think about. And, and it's a way to try to look into the house of language too, not to try to make meaning, speaking of surrealism, uh, you know, trying to make something else might allow us to kind of like creep just a little bit closer to meaning. Before we end, I, I, I want to spend a moment with the electric bill in the bag, a very large and very late unpaid bill. Because there's one passing moment in the book where Aaron, who's in this terrible marriage, who is getting a degree within a department that is wildly, if familiarly, dysfunctional, and where both her books are seemingly unmarketable, and where she fantasizes about getting a large cash advance for her fiction. And then she says, if she did have such an advance, she would leave her program and her husband both. It feels like this moment says so much about what the book is saying, about how much her choices aren't real choices, as so many of them are attending to avoiding financial ruin more than following desire. And this is very gendered within the book as well, intersecting with the status of women. And this also feels like something that interests you in your nonfiction. I'm thinking of your very smart and also very funny piece called Sodom LLC, the Marquis de Sade and the Office novel, where, among other things, you argue that 120 Days of Sodom is an office novel. So saying about Saad's writing more generally, you say, his writings are extraordinarily, purely concerned with acts that can be accomplished only by people working in groups who follow in an orderly fashion arbitrary rules and regulations. These secular constraints not only defy common sense, but fly in the face of what we usually think of as basic respect for the sensations and lives of others. Thus, another neologism, sadism. The writings of the Marquis de Sade describe dispassionate intimacy in the plural. In this sense, they foreshadow the social world of the contemporary office. Sadian sex is, to inject a contemporary term, the fuck of the spreadsheet, in which all markers of identity and sentimentality are like the footlong dildo, the eponymous libertine heroine of the history of Juliet uses to impale a nine-year-old girl, detachable, iterable, and sortable by size. Anyone can be a libertine, provided she or he is willing to be systematic. 
And also I think of your essay, After the Afterlife of Theory, where you talk, among other things, about the number of undergraduate students you've had who were homeless or faced homelessness, who already had a staggering amount of student debt, who were often gig workers, sometimes sex workers, and who left you unequipped with what to meaningfully say to them. And in this light where you question the value of theory, among other things in this essay, you say, while I remain a bit agnostic on the theory ruining everything or not issue, there are two points on which I am clear. One, it is a mistake to think that you can replace theory's strong descriptions of colonialism and late capitalism with vague allusions to said descriptions. And two, the cost of a BA is more distracting and enervating to the citizenry than any form of relativism, narrative or otherwise. So thinking about the titles of the three sections of Life is Everywhere, which I now know is Passepartout, and their progression from section one, paralysis, to interiors, to lives, I wondered if and how life is everywhere might be puzzling your way toward a language for something like this, the way this gigantic bill in her bag is maybe like botulism and the tiny microscopic thing is actually really large and affecting so much. Uh, something that in your real life left you speechless in front of your own students. When I said to you earlier that the genre of this novel is book, this electricity, electrical bill, this Con Ed bill that's in the novel, which is reproduced in such a way so that you have to rotate the novel and hold it up so that what's normally the the side of the novel becomes the top of the novel and we see something approximating an you know eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and there's also a dotted line uh, on the the second the the recto of the of the electrical bill um, saying tear off here so that you can remove the payment slip and if you want to pay uh, this bill for the characters uh, there's an address you can mail it to. And in fact, that's a that's a real address. So your payment will indeed reach <laughs> Con Edison if you're that sort of reader. <laughs> so there is a, a, a little bit of a, a gesture toward, you know, inevitably something real that might be <laughs> underlying this book, but also to the, the reality of the book and the, the realness of the, the format of the book and that the book itself is participating in the narrative mm. and is not just a, a substrate, a support for the text that is telling us a story. I don't have, again, as I say in that essay after the afterlife of theory that I, that I published in May of uh, 2018 uh, around the, you know, the, the 50th anniversary of uh, May 1968, a solution except to point out the different forces and styles of representation that are intention in the present. 
and to say there is there is tension between uh, you know the cost of uh, an undergraduate education in the humanities and what a degree in the humanities can do in financial terms in uh, you know contemporary America. I think I think we can we can you know kind of say that that that's that's a that's a real thing and it's a it's a question that we should ask about the answer to that question isn't stop teaching the humanities or do something to the humanities to make it more profitable those are not answers that i would propose but i i think that reading and writing is only improved by attention to contradiction and attention also to the places in which we choose not to feel and choose not to attend to experience. So again, that's something that I'm dealing with over and over again in my novel and to such an extent that I want to call it a book because that's what it is. It's a book. And that's our experience of it, ultimately, is as as book. And it's tricky to get to that, to get to book space from fiction space. Mm. And I think that that's, that's interesting. That's also something that we should pay attention to. Well, let's go out with one more brief reading, this time from Deep Within the Bag, deep within Aaron's rejected novel, fittingly titled Hypergraphia, um, the opening page of the section called Memories of the Future. I've never tried to tell this story. I've told plenty of other ones and to almost anyone who would listen, especially once I got divorced, but never this one. The reason I haven't tried is that I'm not sure that it's a story. It's like I've removed myself from so many of the scenes and so effectively that although I know what happened, I'm not sure what relationship I myself have to the events. It's like I'm floating on the ceiling. I'm sitting on the bookshelf. I'm laid out underneath the kitchen table. I'm tucked into a drawer and I'm not that person. I'm not that person there who lives and speaks the words. The major problem with the story is that it does not begin. I'm going to try to talk to you about it, but it doesn't have a proper beginning. Anyway, I have a theory about human development in the contemporary era that helps to explain this. I don't entirely understand who I am in the larger system of inheritance and imitation, but I have some idea of how it works. The way it works is through repetition and also through forgetting. While you are a child, you will forget some of the things that happened to you. When you are an adult, What you cannot remember is what you do. The result is that the world is an inversion of everything that has already happened to everyone, an imprint in reverse, the original details of which no one recalls. Of course, I'm not saying that it is exact. The repetition is significantly flawed, wonky. It's like how the camera lens, that device that organizes light and distance, necessarily distorts that which it at once reveals. The picture, a repetition, what comes to pass is lossy, flat, and inexact. 
Perhaps it's uglier, perhaps more beautiful. I've never been particularly photogenic, except when very young. This is how newness enters the world, by the way, and why anyone can have memories of the future. Thank you, Lucy Ives, for being on Between the Covers with me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been um, a challenge and a trip. And I'm, <laughs> I hope I'm a, very grateful. I hope a somewhat, here. a somewhat pleasurable challenge and a trip. That they're the only things I like. So, <laughs> indeed. We've been talking today to Lucy Ives about her book, Past Part Two, otherwise known as Life is Everywhere from Grey Wolf. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Neyman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the Volunteer Powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Lucy Ives' work at lucy-ives.com. For the bonus audio archive, Lucy adds a reading of her five-part writing prompt, Exercise for Writing from Memory, which joins supplemental material from Jory Graham, Dion Brand, Rosemary Waldrop, Mickey Finney, Natalie Diaz, Arthur Z, Forrest Gander, and many others. This is just one potential reward and possible reason to join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests. Every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation. And you can choose from a wide variety of other potential enticements, whether becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to any number of gifts and collectibles from past guests, from out-of-print chapbooks by Ursula K. Le Guin, to writing consultations, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Alice Evelyn Yang in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning. 